How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Hey, is there any graduates or family of graduate people? A couple? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, so what? Today is Central Magnets graduation, I think, and then yesterday was Oakland and Blackman, and then last week was Siegel, I think. Did I cover all those? So I don't know when Riverdale's is. When is Riverdale's? I just heard like mumbling. I shouldn't ask questions from up here, should I? Hey, what's blah, blah, blah? And it's like, blah, 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 blah. So, um, <laughs> hey, if you guys have never been with us, uh, A, I'm glad you guys are here. B, we've been in the book of Hebrews for quite a while now. We're in chapter 10. We're going to do the second half of it. If you weren't here last week, we talked about this uh, in the first half of the book of Hebrews, which by the way, if you have your Bible, New Testament, right before the book of James, right after uh, the book of Philemon. Um, we talked about this last week. The New Testament speaks of three virtues that are very, very important. Paul wrote about this and several other authors wrote about faith, hope, and love. And we talked about last week that if we have these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, that the Christian, the believer can overcome anything. So the question isn't, are these three virtues effective? The question is, do we embody, do we have these three virtues? This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to do the second half of chapter 10. We're going to start, I think, in verse 26 and do the second half. And we're going to talk about that if we identify with Christ, we're called to a higher standard of living, a higher standard of love, a higher standard of community, higher standard of benevolence and grace and all these different things that we're called to be at a higher standard. Now, um, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, it's interesting. Sometimes the word is, is uh, not always fun to hear. And so for the last couple of weeks, I, I've personally been a little frustrated, not with you. I mean, I love you. I get frustrated with, uh, I think, how we, church, how we do church sometimes in our community, and, and I sometimes get frustrated because I, I know people who've experienced the power of God, and, and we don't really show that in our lives, and we don't really live it out the way we should, and I just get frustrated. And I was encouraged because at the end of chapter 10, the author really, really lifts up the believer, and I hope today that through the Word, um, that you're encouraged. And so I know there's a time for correction. I know there's a time for those things, but there's also a time that we need to be, we need to be lifted up. And so after saying that, I'm also going to say this, at the risk of sounding like a pastor. Um, you're here today because the Lord wants you to be here. Regardless of why you think you came into this place, whether it's to see somebody or because you got pressured into it or your spouse made you or just had nothing, nothing better to do this morning or whatever the case may be, God has somehow set aside this time for all of us to be in this place and for you to specifically be in this place. And so there's something this morning that's to be said that you're supposed to hear. Now, again, the question isn't if something is said that you need to hear. The question is, are our antennas up? Are we receptive to what the Word has to say to us today? Are we looking? Are we listening? Are we present? So all I ask of you today is just to be present, just to pay attention. It's a short lesson. There's not a whole lot of Scripture we're going to cover and um, you have the notes handouts in front of you. It's on version. If you need to look at, uh, uh, if you have the app, you can go by and look at all the notes on there. And um, again, I just want you to be present, okay? Just for 30, 45 minutes, however long I'm going to speak, okay? All right, so I'm going to pray. We'll jump into chapter 10 of Hebrews, and um, we'll see what the Lord has to say, okay? Father God, I love you. Lord, I love this church so much. I thank you, God, for everyone who's in this room right now. Lord, you have brought us all together. You have brought us all together, God, for a specific time, a specific reason, Lord, and a purpose. And I pray, God, that we are just um, aware 
that we're present, that we're open, that we're in our right minds and that we're, we're thinking, God, and we're, and we're waiting for what you want to do with us and through us, God. Lord, we pray for every church in our city. God, we pray for every pastor. We pray for every congregation that your kingdom is advanced through them and that our individual kingdoms are not lifted up, God, but yours is lifted up. I pray that we can work together better, God, and that we can advance the gospel to people who may not know it, Lord Jesus. God, we also pray for all the people in our city that don't know you yet, all the Buddhists, all the Hindus, all the Muslims, all the atheists, all the agnostics, all the people, God, that have not had the opportunity uh, to hear your gospel and to respond to it yet. God, Lord, let us be a vessel to reach those individuals. We love you, Father, and we thank you, God. Be with me today as I teach. Help me to be accurate. Help me to be gracious and kind and and, uh, just to honor your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 10, verse 26 of Hebrews. I'm going to read a little bit. I'll do my best to explain it, and uh, we'll see what happens. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant which he has sanctified, which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, so going on what we talked about a little bit last week, we talked about at the end of the middle part of chapter 10, how he says that we should not forsake this, the assembling of ourselves together, that the church is vitally important. And the reason why the author brought up the importance of the church is he was essentially saying, he was alluding to the fact that if we start uh, disregarding and not taking seriously the church, we may also start to disregard and not take seriously our relationship with Jesus. That if one stops attending the Christian gathering, the worship gathering, that we may also reject our Savior. And so in the church, the reason why the church is so vitally important is it is in the church that we not only hear, but we dissect and we break down and we teach the Word of God. In the church, we find accountability, not just me to you, but you to me, that we find people that hold our feet to the fire, make sure that we are living the way that we are called to live. In the church, we pull our resources. We pull not just our finances so we can help the city. We pull our talent and our abilities and just manpower, and we get these things together so we can go out and advance the kingdom of God, and we can better the community around us. We also find correction in the church. I know that's not fun, but sometimes we need to be corrected. If I'm living in such a way that could put my marriage and my relationship with my children and the ultimate relationship with my Father in heaven, if it puts those things in jeopardy, I need you to tell me, and I'm going to tell you. And we do that because we love each other, that we correct each other. We also receive encouragement. If you haven't noticed, the world sometimes looks like a pretty hopeless place, and we need a hope, we need encouragement, we need brothers and sisters to stand by us in times of loss and confusion and discouragement, and we need each other. So the church is important. So one of the words that jumps out, though, in this part that I just read, a word that's very important to the beginning of, of this lesson, is the word deliberate. Now, we talked about last week 
that in the Old Testament, there was no, all the ceremonies that they provided and all the different things that the, the high priest and, and the Levitical priest would do, nothing that the ceremonies of the Old Testament could do could reconcile people who had created sins or done sins deliberately. It only dealt with sins that were done in ignorance. So if you did something and you didn't know it was wrong, the ceremonies of the Old Testament could reconcile you and push those sins forward. But nothing dealt with sins that were done deliberately. Now, what's interesting is Jesus came and changed all that. So now, because of the blood of Jesus through the cross, Jesus came to even forgive sins that were done when we knew right and wrong. Now, I could ask you to raise your hands, which don't ever raise your hands. So if I'm like, you know, we've all struggled with porn, right? It's like, no, don't just don't do that. So if I were to ask you to raise your hands, who's deliberately sinned, who knew right and wrong and has still chosen wrong, all of us are guilty. But the beauty of Christ is this, is that as believers in Jesus, we have assurance that if we confess our sins, even sins we did on purpose, that he is quick to forgive those. It says that in 1 John 1.19. That's something that had never been done before. But Jesus came and he forgave and will continue to forgive our rebellion if we ask for forgiveness. Now, the problem is some people take that and run in an improper direction with it. So does this give us a pass to abuse grace? Does this give us a free pass to continue to rebel and sin? Paul addressed this in Romans 6. He said, should we continue to sin so grace can multiply? Paul says, no, that's crazy. Though we can receive forgiveness for rebellion, true repentance means that we turn from the way we were going and go a different direction. So God forgives us of deliberate sins, but we do not continue to do deliberate sins. Willful sins can be forgiven, but oftentimes we don't even seek forgiveness. We don't go that way or we justify our sins. Well, Corey, I cheated on my wife because she's, she's always just mean to me. Or I did this because of that. Or I cheated on my taxes because we just needed extra money. And we somehow justify our sins. Or we use the banner of God as love to completely ignore our poor choices. Well, God is love, so he doesn't care that I'm doing this. Well, God is love, so he overlooks this sin. Nowhere is that congruent with the scripture. He sees every single corner of us and it says that he even disciplines us because he loves us. So love has a, a, love intrinsically has correction and discipline tied into it. And so moving on, the reason why this letter was written, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know even know who it was written to. But one of the main reasons it was written was to give to a group of people who had, who had experienced the gospel. And what had happened is because of persecution, a lot of the individuals who were receiving or had received the gospel were now starting to turn away. So the recipients of Hebrews were turning away from the gospel because of the threat of physical harm and social harm. But the author of Hebrews reminded them that there's a much worse fate than physical persecution. There's much worse that can happen to us if we've heard the gospel and deliberately reject it and turn away from it. So if one abandons Christ, if one has had an encounter of Christ, has learned the truth of Christ, has, has been subjected to the gospel, and they deliberately turn away, the author says there is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire. This is talking about the same fire that our adversaries will face. This is hell. 
And so he says, for the one that receives the gospel, sees the gospel, knows the truth, deliberately walks away, there is a judgment for this. And this is not because God is not gracious. This is not because Jesus gets a kick out of damning people to hell. That's not it at all. In fact, John 3, 17 says that Jesus came to be the safety net, that he came not to condemn us to hell, but to save us from condemnation. What's happening is God is a God of order. And when we take God out of the equation, the only thing that's left is chaos. The only thing that's left is disorder. So naturally, because left to our own devices, we are going to fall into a pit of chaos. We are on our way to destruction. And Jesus in his grace extends his hand and whoever will choose to fall into his grace and fall into his safety will be saved. And so it's not that Jesus is not gracious. He's the one that offers an escape from this fate. But if we reject that net, if we reject that hand, the only other option is destruction. The only other option is hell. It's not something we like to talk about in church a lot. And so what this individual was saying is he probably had a large group of people that he was writing to, maybe not just in this area, but in multiple areas. And so he could not effectively look at everyone's relationship with Jesus. He couldn't effectively evaluate everyone's inward commitment. Just like at this church, I don't mean this boastfully, but we may have you know, 2,200 people here on the weekend. And, and of those 2,200, I may know three or 400 really, really well. And so there's no way that I or Josh or Kyle or Corey or anyone else on staff can evaluate effectively everyone's relationship with Jesus. So what the author is saying is since we can't do that, he urged them to show their faith by their lifestyles. He encouraged them to make it through the adversities that were coming at them and to be committed to the commands that Christ gave us. What he wanted them to do, this is so important. He wanted them to remember what life was like before they met Jesus. When's the last time you thought of that? If I were to go around this room and I were to ask you, what was life like before you met Jesus? How was that? How did that work out for you? Sometimes we glamorize the past, right? We talk about the old days and then you really think about it and you're like, man, the old days sucked. That wasn't good at all. Went to a show recently, right? At uh, a marathon up in um, Nashville. I don't go to shows very much because like, I don't like people touching me. And so uh, we went to the show and it was sold out and it was standing room, about a room this size. I posted a picture of it on Instagram because I'm goofy, but I went as far back as I could. And you know, those like dividers, like, like the sound guys are there. I just sat on that and I just stayed as far back as possible. And the band we went and saw, um, I knew these guys back in the late nineties and, and you know, they went on and were super famous and have won Grammys and all this stuff. And you know, I became a, a, a dad, you know? And so I'm back in the back watching these guys. And for a second, I'm like, man, I used to do that. And this is awesome. And look at this crowd. And then I'm kind of like, man, I also tried to kill myself twice during that time. That wasn't good. I was extremely discontent. That was awful. And sometimes we need to remember and we need to go back and, and, and think of the past and saw what God delivered us from and remember that and be overjoyed by the fact that, that, that we live in such a, a wonderful relationship with him now. And going backwards would be extremely dangerous. The Bible actually says to go backwards after you've had an encounter with Jesus is like a dog going back to its vomit. Look at how disgusting that is. Our old lifestyles before we met Jesus are the same thing as a dog going back to its vomit. And so oftentimes, 
we talk about the Old Testament and what Christianity has done a lot is we've almost demonized the Old Testament a lot. Man, can you believe God was crazy back then? He'd blow up cities and if someone touched the ark, he'd strike them dead. And man, God was just really, really vengeful and mean back then. God's always been the same. And so what it says is the author says, back in the Old Testament, if you reject the laws of Moses, if you broke the Ten Commandments, if you broke the 600 other Levitical laws that, that were handed down to Moses by God, if you broke these things, they could be punishable by death. And now some people will say, man, that's extreme. Well, what the author of Hebrews says, if you think that's extreme, how much more punishment should we deserve if we have been shown the cross Jesus came down, died, bled on the cross, resurrected, poured out his Holy Spirit. How much more of a punishment should we receive if we've trampled on the Son of God, regarded the blood as profane, insulted the grace of God? How much worse of an offense is that than just touching the Ark of the Covenant or breaking one of the Ten Commandments? And how far greater of a punishment will we receive after the grace of God has been poured out? Many theologians believe that in the Old Testament, that if you broke one of the Old Testament laws and you were, you were literally struck down by God, that there was still this option or that, that, that one could still eventually find their way into heaven because you were still one of God's people and you had still been obedient to these other laws and rolled back your sins. But in the New Testament, it says there will no longer be a sacrifice for these things if we've rejected the grace of Jesus. And so at any time, we can be forgiven of our offenses at any time but we must be repentant. We must approach Christ and we must ask for forgiveness and we must change the way we think and act. And at any time he will forgive us. But to insult the spirit of grace is the pinnacle of arrogance. This isn't, and this isn't referring to atheists. You know, we Christians like to point fingers at guys like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and these other very loud, boisterous atheists or uh, agnostics, people who are Unitarians or Universalists, or we point the finger at Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims. In our town, we have a lot of Muslims and we think this is referring to all these other people that they've insulted the spirit of grace. That's not who it's talking about. This scripture is talking about all the multitudes of Christians that fill up churches every weekend. And it fills, they, they fill up these buildings, but they have no relationship with Jesus. They've heard the truth. They've heard the gospel. They even felt the power of the Holy Spirit, but they have rejected that. And that is the most arrogant thing we can do. People who've willingly walked away. And even Jesus said that we are held accountable for the knowledge that we've received. And the more knowledge we receive, the more accountable we are. So when you leave this building today, you're responsible. You're going to be held accountable for what you've heard from the word today. You can't walk out of here claiming ignorance now that we need to repent and that we need to change. You're now held accountable for that straight out of Jesus's mouth. And so again, a topic that we don't like to talk about in church, right? Hell, because it doesn't fill up offering plates and it doesn't pack out buildings. But we don't like to talk about this. But it essentially says the apostate, the one who experiences God's judgment should know that it will be a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God, to rebel against him and then have to stand in front of him. So to the one who knows right and wrong, to the one who knows right and wrong, it should fill us with dread to think of an eternity apart from Jesus. 
It should concern us that we don't have a relationship with him. And the author was fearful of that very thing. The author was fearful that a lot of people would hear the gospel, have opportunity to respond to the gospel, but would take it for granted, that they would take it too lightly, that they would not properly assess the importance and the grandness of the gospel. Next part. That was the, that was the kind of negative side. Let's get into the, the positive side. It says, remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one, righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. Now here's the good one. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. So not only, guys, are we to remember the days before we met Jesus, we're to remember the days after we met Jesus when Jesus delivered us from hard times. We're called not just to remember the time he saved us and changed us, but the times he delivered us from trials and temptations. Some of you guys need to journal, not just when things are good, when things are bad. Um, this isn't a shameless plug for Josh and I's book, but that whole book was basically from a journal that I kept. I would keep up when we first started this church and I was in some of the darkest times of my entire life and I wrote about all the things that I was just going through and I was very honest in this journal. Now I go back and read those things from 2008 and 2009. I'm like, my Lord, God, you're so good. I remember when this church was 30 people in a basement and rent was $1,500 and tithing was only $900. You know, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I remember these times and see, to see where God has brought us. And so what the author is essentially saying right here as he said, look, in the past, you had been faithful to the Lord and you refused to compromise. And he didn't let you down then. So the author's saying, why do you think he's gonna let you down now? If he delivered you then and you didn't compromise then, hold on to your faith and he will get you through what you're going through right this moment. So he was lifting them up. And he said, listen, he said, look, there were times when you were the one that was persecuted. You were publicly exposed to all these afflictions. There were other times when it wasn't you, but it was your friend, it was someone in the community of believers, and you stood by them when they were treated that way. And what it does is it reaffirms that we need each other, that we need this community, that when one is weak, others are strong and they rally around that. And they suffered because of their association with God, and they suffered because of their association with the church. But they found it a privilege to suffer. They found it a privilege to share in these sufferings because it identified them with Christ. So if you've ever researched the church in China, there are certain churches in certain areas in China where Christianity is just very, very oppressed. 
And so when you research it out, they will meet literally sometimes in underground basements and in caverns, and they'll meet in different like sewage plants and these different areas, and just like the first century church. And they would get together and they would meet in these different areas, right, in fear of persecution. So when they get together, these, these churches in China, they will pack themselves from front to back, chest to back, shoulder to shoulder, and they'll get there about six o'clock in the morning. And what they do is people who come in who are fortunate enough to have a copy of the scripture will come in and they will read the scripture. Sometimes they will find ministers from out of the country and they will come in and they will minister. And the ministers will often ask, what do you want me to teach on? And they will just tell them, read the scripture. Just read the scripture. And they'll say, well, how long should I teach or read the scripture? And they'll say, well, we're going to start about seven in the morning and we're going to end about seven o'clock at night. Twelve hours. So what these Chinese men and women, these believers in Jesus, who don't even have the honor to, most of them don't even own a Bible, they will come in and they will cram pack into these rooms and they will not eat, they will not, they will not uh, use the restroom, they will not drink water from seven in the morning to seven at night and all they do is hear the word of God. And the reason why they do that and the reason why they're okay with that is because they were taught by the word that their suffering identifies them with the suffering of their savior. And so it's not a big deal for them to sit there and they know that even greater than water and food and using the restroom is they need to hear the word of God. How much different of a culture that is than ours to where here we have so much freedom and so much access and there's empty chairs in here right now. And we have all of this freedom, but they found it a privilege, just like these people in Hebrews, to suffer and it wasn't just suffering like, you know, someone made fun of them on Facebook. That's not persecution. They suffered real persecution. A couple of the hardships that were mentioned were this. First, they had sympathized with people in prison, not murderers and, and rapists and things like that, though they did minister to them. This is talking about people who were in prison because they were a believer. And back in this time, the prisons didn't give them food. If you were to eat in prison, it's because families brought you food. And so the Christians would bring the other Christians food in prison. And because they did that, they were publicly shamed. They were made fun of. They were spat upon. That was one thing. Another thing that happened is the government would confiscate their belongings. They would come in and ransack their houses and take all their possessions and take everything they had. And they would confiscate these things. And in these things, they found joy. They found joy in the fact that these things were happening to them. Again, we won't come to church if it interferes with our favorite TV show. They found it a joy to do this because it identified them with Christ. They knew that they had better possessions in heaven, better possessions in their relationship with Christ and the promise of an eternity with him. There was nothing that the government could take from them. There's nothing that persecutors could take for them that equaled what they had in Christ. Those things were eternal. And so I wonder, can we make the same claim? Do we find it a joy when we sacrifice material earthly things in exchange for heavenly things? Can we say that about ourselves? I had to give up these things. And we don't talk about how bad that was. We talk about how honored we are that we got to give those things up for the cause and for the mission of Jesus Christ. And so he says, don't throw away your confidence. He's, he's pumping them up. He's like, you guys have already been all this stuff through all this junk in the past. Don't throw away your confidence. The confidence you have in Christ gives us endurance through these tough times. We receive rewards for our relationship with Jesus now. We talked about this last week. We receive contentment. We receive joy. 
We receive peace and a peace of mind right now from our relationship with Jesus. And that's not even to mention what we get in heaven and what we get in eternity. And this endurance and the staying power, it only comes when we learn to trust God. And we only learn to trust God when we pray, when we read the word of God, and when we fully submit to God. That's how we gain trust and that's how we gain endurance. Prayer, reading the word, and being fully submitted. That's how we gain endurance. That's how we gain trust. And two things happen when we have endurance. First, we do the will of God, which means God starts to use us to do amazing things in our families, our communities, with our friends, people around us. We start doing the will of God. And then we start to receive the promises of God, that, that contentment, that joy, that fulfillment, that peace, and that we're called to show the validity of our faith by living out our faith. Our faith is not shown in bumper stickers or tattoos or jewelry or Facebook posts. Our faith is shown through how we live, through the fruit of the Spirit, which I'm gonna show you here in a second, and through a manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, if you don't know what the fruit of the Spirit is, we're gonna go down a charismatic road for a second. If you don't know what the fruit of the Spirit is, now look here, coming from an English background, fruit is singular not plural. That means you can't pick and choose which one of these you like, and I'm really good at this one, but I'm terrible at this one. No. The Christian should display all of these things. The fruit, singular, of the Spirit are all of these things. The Christian should display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. And against these things, there are no laws, which means there's no laws that can mandate them and there's no laws that can prohibit these things from working. These things are beyond laws. These are the fruit of an individual being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This is what should come out of us. Now, to go a little bit further, in Romans chapter 12, these are different gifts of the Spirit. Now, you may read some of these, and some people are naturally good leaders, or they're naturally merciful, or naturally good teachers. That's not what this is referring to. This is referring to a supernatural gift, that one is not naturally a good teacher, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, they become a great speaker, or a great leader, or merciful, or they're great servants, or they have the gift of prophecy. And so these are different gifts that are not natural. They're supernatural for us. Now, let's go a little bit deeper into the weird stuff, right? into 1 Corinthians 12. The thing that jumps out at me, and again, these are, this is one of these passages that whole denominations have shunned and said do not exist anymore and they're not active anymore. Now, I have a problem with this and it's contained in the scripture. It says a demonstration of the spirit is given to each of you. That means every single one of you that call on the name of Jesus and call yourself a Christian, at least one of these gifts will manifest itself in your life. When we pray for these things, I come from a denomination that only focused on one or two of these, we're not to go into prayer and just say, God, I just want this. We're to approach God and say, God, for the benefit of your kingdom, for the benefit of my community and for my church family, whatever gifts you have for me, bestow those gifts on me so I can use them, not for my edification, but for lifting up my brothers and sisters and for advancing your kingdom. And if we honestly pray that, and if we're open-minded to it, God will start to use these, th- these things through each and every person. And this is to produce what's beneficial. There's the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, courageous faith, gifts of healing, performing miracles, prophecy, 
the distinguishing between spirits or the discernment to know what is good and what is evil, different kinds of languages, that's speaking in tongues, and the interpretation of speaking in tongues. So every believer should show the gifts of the Spirit, or I'm sorry, show the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and it sometimes should manifest different gifts of the Spirit. Every believer should be inviting to that and should be displaying that. That's how we show our faith. And so these Christians were struggling, right? They were on the struggle bus. And so these guys were being persecuted and bad things were happening. And so the author in verse 37 and verse 38 is essentially saying, hold on. I know you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. I know it doesn't look like God's coming through right now, but he is. And so he takes the words of Isaiah and he takes some words from Habakkuk, one of my favorite books of the Bible, and he integrates them together. He kind of mashes them together into this passage, basically saying, hold on. I know circumstances are crazy, but hold on. God's going to make a way. And what we do is we perceive a lack of action from God because God doesn't work on my timetable. And what you and I need to learn to do is we need to learn to trust that God's timing is better than our timing. And we also need to learn that God is sovereign. He's got all of it in his hands. He knows whatever is going on. He has our best interests at his heart. He is sovereign and we need to learn to trust him. So those that trust him, those that stick with him, those that hold on to their confidence, they hold on to their hope, the righteous that live by faith, they're going to make it. But the ones that waver, it says, have no hope. It says to the one that draws back, the one that pulls away, divorces God, if you will, God finds no pleasure in him. And this is not a lack of grace on God's part. God's grace is thick and it's deep and it's sufficient for all of us. It's a denial of that grace on our part. His grace is fine. It's us. It's we're the ones that choose not to have it. And the exact opposite is true of the believer that holds on to faith and the knowledge they receive. It says that they obtain life. So here's where I've been the last couple of weeks. I said it earlier, I've just been discouraged. Again, it's not because of you completely. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if it's because I was brought through so much that... that I hope I say this with humility. My lot in life, what God has called me to do, and I hope you believe this, and if you, if you don't know me, I, I, I think I'm a humble individual. My lot in life is God has called me to be one that looks out for the souls of the people in this room. And so in God's infinite wisdom, he's given me a lot of souls that, that I'm to, to, to care for. And sometimes in that, I see I see some of the choices you guys make, and I see some of the bad decisions. And what it all boils down to is we tend to forget what our true identity is. And so what the author was saying, and it just came at such a perfect time for me, because I felt like I've just been beating people up for like three weeks solid. And I feel like I've been hard on you guys, and I've been harping on you, but I hope you know that that comes from a place where I love you and I care about your soul, and I care about your family, and I care about how you live. And what the author says at the end of chapter 10, it was so much encouragement for me. After talking about people who are going to deny the grace of God, and he talks about hellfire, and he talks about all this stuff. He then writes to the people that he loves, listen, he says, that's not you. 
There are some that will turn away. There are some that will not please God, but that's not us. That's not us. We're the ones that have our faith. We're the ones that obtain life. We're not the ones that draw back. In other words, he was saying to his congregation, his people, he was saying, you're better than this. You're better than laziness. You're better than lackadaisical faith. You're better than just nominal Christianity. You're better than porn addiction and intoxication. And you're better than being dependent on all these prescription drugs. And you're better than all these things. You know me. You know the Savior. You know Christ. He was essentially saying, you have forgotten that you are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Therefore, you're not living like royalty. Are you guys awake out there? 1 Peter 2.9, he says that you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, God's possession. And the reason why some of us make the poor choices we make and go down the roads we go down is because we forget who we belong to. And the author was saying, you're afraid of the world. Jesus addressed this. You're afraid of the world. You're afraid of culture. You're afraid of what's going on. But take heart. Jesus says, I've already overcome the world. I've already overcome those things. So one of the things that keeps us distracted is first I want to tell you that what you've done in the past does not have to be your definition. What you've done in the past does not have to be your identity. The mistakes you've made, the bad choices, the sins, the rebellion, the people you've hurt. If you ask God to forgive you of your sins and you reconcile with the people that you've offended, no longer do those things d d define you. They are not your identity. And now everyone cheers that on typically. Yeah, I'm not what I used to do. But you know where a lot of Christians hang out and I'm not trying to be mean and I'm not trying to be insensitive. A lot of Christians hang out in being a victim. Well, these things were done to me, therefore I've done these things. I was abused as a child, therefore I've made these sexual decisions. I had a terrible mother and father, therefore that's why my marriage broke down and we are victims and we find our identity in what has been done to us. And I'm gonna tell some of you guys, I love you and I'm not trying to be insensitive. You are not a victim, you are an overcomer. And you do not have to be, you do not have to be defined by what has been done to you. I'm sorry that those things have happened. I'm just gonna be real blunt. I had a horrible example of a father. Did not, that does not mean that I have to be a poor father. By the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can be a phenomenal dad. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, divorce or abuse or neglect or hurts from a church or hurts from people you love, you can get beyond those things. God has called us to be gracious like he has been gracious and we are not defined as victims. We are victorious we are victorious through Christ. And if we identify with Christ, like I said, everything in this world has already been overcome by Jesus. So if we're in Jesus, we have also overcome the world. And we're no longer slaves to fear. We're not slaves to political fear. We're not slaves to Fox News or CNN. We're not slaves to what politicians say. We're not slaves to economic collapse fears. We're not slaves to world terrorism fear. We're not slaves to any of that. Even if they do the worst, and even if they kick in your door and cut off your head, if you have a relationship with Jesus, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not only do you go to heaven as a martyr 
It says in Revelation that you kind of get like a VIP seating until the rest of us join you. Take my life, you've just ushered me into paradise. We have no fear. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one that can take your body. Be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. You should have no fear of the world. No fear. We are not slaves to intoxicants. In a society that is increasingly trying to push, we, could le we should legalize more drugs. We should distribute more drugs. Do you know what the number one bridge to heroin addiction is? It's not marijuana. It's prescription medication that you can get from your doctor. It's the number one bridge to heroin use. I talked about it last week in the book of Revelation. It says there will come a time when there will be a society that is engulfed in sorcery. The word sorcery comes from pharmakia. That's where we get our word pharmacy. It's not talking about sorcery like Harry Potter. It's talking about there will be a culture that believes that their only way out is through prescription medication. Listen, your hope isn't in a drug. Your hope isn't in intoxication. Your hope isn't in a drink. Your hope isn't in, isn't in smoking something. Your contentment, your joy, your fulfillment, your identity is not in a plant. It is in your God. It is the one that you are made in the image of. It is the one that has given us the ability to overcome. It is the one that has given us the comforter and the counselor, the Holy Spirit inside of us. We are not slaves to pleasures. You do not have to be addicted to porn. You do not have to fight with lust all the time. You can overcome those things. Does it take steps? Does it take processes? Yes, but God can also deliver you. That we are not slaves to our pleasures. We are not slaves to our telephones. We are not slaves to our TVs. We are not slaves to the internet. We are not slaves to those things. We're not slaves of expectations. It's not about pleasing each other. It's about pleasing our Father in heaven. It is about not meeting the expectations of culture or the world or even church. It is about meeting the expectations of Jesus Christ. We are not slaves to culture. If you follow Jesus, you need to get it in your head that we will always be counterculture. Always be counterculture. He was never in line with culture, not even, not even religious culture, that we will always be counterculture. And we are not slaves to our past. We are not slaves of what we've done or what has been done to us. And here's what the word talks about. It's not just Jesus' design that we make it through life. It's Jesus' design that we excel at life. That we don't just be adequate parents, but we're amazing parents. Not just adequate spouses, but amazing spouses. Not just adequate business owners or employees or students or whatever our lot in life is but to do everything for the glory of the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit and that we can excel at life. I'm not talking about materialism. I'm not talking about climbing the corporate ladder. I'm talking about living in what God wants you to be, that we need to know that we are more than who we give ourselves credit for right now. We've got to get it in our head that we are fashioned to look like God, to act like God, to think like God, made in His image, that we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings, the reason why the Bible talks about that intoxication is a sin is because God has given you a mind that doesn't need to be contaminated. You're more valuable than that. The reason why the Bible talks about modesty is because you're more valuable than your skin. You're a child of a king. You're the daughter of a king, the son of a king. That we are to stand up straight, that we are to take a healthy pride in the fact that we have royal blood coursing through our veins. But some of you have forgotten that. 
And some of you have lived like you're not the son and daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I don't mean that to knock on you. I'm saying this to remind you. If you identify with him, you're called to take heart. And you're also called to step up. Step up. Own your identity. Accept what Jesus has for you. Live the best life you can, not for any other reason except to glorify the God that gives you the breath in your lungs. Some of you, some of you need to be reminded that you're beautiful. And some of you need to be reminded that you're valuable. And some of you need to be reminded that it's not what anyone else says about you. It's what the King of Kings looks down. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every decision you've ever made. And he loves you with this ridiculous love that we cannot comprehend yet. He looks down on us and he just values us and he's enamored by us and he wants to hear how your day has gone and he wants to ride with you in your car as you sip your coffee and talk with you and he wants to engage you. God, God. And some of you just need to be reminded. Would you bow your heads with me? I wish I had some gift or some way to to let you see how God sees you. Think of how you look at your children. You know that filter you have when you look at your children? The most beautiful kid in the world, the smartest kid in the world, the most well-behaved kid in the world, through that parent eyes, right? That's how God sees you. God sees you with this filter, this God filter where he looks down and he says, that's, that's my boy, that's my girl, I love them, I love them. And just like you want what's best for your kids, you want them to get the best education, you want them to be the best husband or wife or mother, daughter, whatever, you want what's best for them. God wants that so much more for you. Not for you to have the most money or the most success in the world's economy. He just wants to be connected with you so you can be a vessel, an instrument a tool to advance the kingdom. Guys, we get to be ambassadors for the only kingdom that will never fall. Let me say it one more time as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. We get to be ambassadors for the only kingdom that never falls. That's you. That's me. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's communion. We have new, new tables. There's some in the back. There's some on the side. There's some up in the front. So it shouldn't take you too long. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. God loves you. Listen, God loves you so much that he gave his only son that whosoever shall believe in him will not die but have everlasting life. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how much God loves you. And that communion represents the fact that God gave his only son for you and for me so we can live at a higher standard so we can be loved and we can love so we can receive grace and we can give it and everyone's welcome to take the representation of that through communion as long as you ask God to forgive you of your sins there will also be people up here to my, my left your right to pray for you if you have anything that you need prayer for
Hey, before we do that, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, will you reach over and put your hand on someone's shoulder? I don't care if you know them or not. Don't leave anyone alone either. Don't leave anyone sitting alone. You don't have to know them. But guys, if we're going to make it, we need each other, okay? So I'm going to pray, and I want you to pray with me, however you feel led. I just want you to pray blessings over the person that you have your hand on, that God would just protect them and bless them, because you have no idea what they may be going through, okay? And then we'll take communion. We're in no rush. Join me in prayer. Father God, I love you. Everyone in this room, Lord, whoever is, 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 has their hand on someone else, God, there is a need and there's a struggle and there's a temptation, there's a fear, something, God. And right now, just like that hand is on their shoulder, I pray, Lord, that they know that your hand is also on them. God, that we're not just in this together, Lord, but you're with us. You're with us until the end of the age. It's your words. You're right in this room, God. And just like we're all connected by each other's hands, Father, your Holy Spirit's going up and down this room. And it's touching people's lives and it's giving them comfort. And Father, you're gonna remind them, Lord, that they are a royal priesthood, that they are sons and daughters of the King, that they are your possession. And anyone in this room, God, who has not given their life to you, Lord, I pray that just like that hand on their shoulder, I pray that they feel your spirit and that they respond to it, God. Lord, I love you, Jesus. Bind us together, make us strong. Thank you, Father, for for loving us and wanting us. We love you and we lift you up, God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself to communion, help yourself to prayer, make yourself at home.